Hello, I'm Marina, and this is the John Sando podcast. It is my pleasure to bring you this latest episode with Laura Freeman. Her new biography of Jim Ede and the Kettles Yard Artists is wonderful. It is a pleasure to read a serious artist's biography that spans the 20th century and that also remains engaging, readable and charmingly anecdotal. Many of you have already been buying, reading and loving this book, and those of you that haven't should. Please get in touch if you'd like to buy one. We have a number of copies which Laura was kind enough to sign when she visited the shop. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Laura Freeman is Chief Art Critic of the Times. Her first book, The Reading Cure, was published in 2018. She studied at Magdalen College, Cambridge, just a pebble's throw away from Kettle's Yard, and most recently she has written Ways of Life, Jim Ede and the Kettle's Yard Artists. It was published in mid-May and has swiftly become a customer and a staff favourite here at John Sandoz. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Laura to the podcast to discuss this beautiful biography. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start with Cambridge and proximity to Kettle's Yard. Did you, because obviously Morden and Kettle's Yard are right next to each other, did you grow to love it when you were at university or did you come to it later on? Well, I, I went in freshers week. Um, I'm always slightly embarrassed to admit that I was a very bad fresher. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I didn't drink then. I don't really drink now. Mm. I've never been terribly good at parties and mm. I was a bit out of my depth. Um, I was incredibly lucky that the other art historian in my year at Magdalen had grown up in nearby Newmarket. I'm also lucky that she's just a delightful person. Mm. Um, and, and she said, well, why don't we go to this very special place? It's just up the road. Mm. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. We'll just go and you can discover it for yourself. Um, and obviously it's it's not really like any other museum or gallery. You don't really just stroll in. Mm. Of course, you sort of stand there on the doorstep and you ring the bell um, and the sort of like, you know, scurrying and the background and you get a kind of scraping of the key and then the door opens and in you go. Um, so I really fell in love with it on that first visit as so many people have done before and since. Yeah. I went back a lot as an undergraduate because you can still sit at that table upstairs and you know do your homework, um, yeah. write your dissertation, do your wow. essay. I mean the potter Edmund Duval always talks about writing his dissertation up there in, on the mezzanine. Mm. Um, you know it sort of beats the stacks in the university library. Um, and, and I'd been back several times since, just you know, as a, as a day tripper. Um, and then I covered the reopening um, for the Sunday Times. That was in 2018 when they just built this incredible extension. And I kind of came around. And I was thinking, you know, someone must have written a book about Jimmy, or someone presumably been working on one for decades, you know, in the background, and it just hasn't been published yet. Um, and when I asked Andrew Nairn, who's the director, whether anyone was doing one, he said no. And I said, well could I? And he said yes. Um, so that was sort of in some ways the easiest pitch ever. Wow, because I was, I, was I was going to ask you how that idea germinated. Um, the book obviously came out this year. You had the idea pitched at 2018. What was the beginning of that project like? And what was, with a gallery which, so, which like you said, isn't a traditional gallery, and with a place as special and as storied as Kettle's Yard, how did you negotiate with that feeling um, of tackling a project that so many people feel that they own? How much access were you given? And 
what was lockdown research and writing like? I, I just want, I know that that's a horrible question, but I'm genuinely the curious with something like this, how it would have affected it. Um, oh, well, we'll get to lockdown. That was not ideal. <laughs> Let's put it like that. I just because it was ideal for anybody doing anything. Mm. Um, so when I pitched it to Jonathan Cape and, and they wonderfully said yes. In fact, my, my brilliant editor, B. Hemming, she said she'd never been to Kettle's Yard, so she got the pitch and she was saying, this sort of sounds kind of great, but, you know, I don't really know what you're talking about, you know. Um, and, and I think, unless you've seen Kettle's Yard, sometimes maybe it's quite hard to sort of, you know, conjure it up out of the ether. Mm. And to her credit, B. got on the train to Cambridge that weekend and went to see it, and she sent me an email on the Monday saying, OK, I get what you're going on about. This is a special place. Um, so I'm indebted to her. Um, and then... I almost had a bit of a kind of, I don't know, a wobble when I signed the contract because I thought if all I say is this is a very beautiful space created by this extremely mm. lovely man and isn't it serene and wonderful, it's going to be a very short <laughs> and boring book. Um, and Which I, it isn't at all. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, I've got to get better at selling it. Um, don't worry. We're, we are so good at selling it. <laughs> We've really got it down pat by this point. Um, and I think the lovely thing about Jimmy is that he was serene in some ways, but also, I mean, it's become almost a cliche to write a biography and say he was a man of contradictions. Mm. But of course, um, many people are men and women of contradictions. Mm. Um, and I think the more I looked at his life, the more idiosyncratic, eccentric, odd, brilliant, inspired, unfathomable he mm -hmm. became. Um, and of course, he had a very long life. He he, he lived to ninety five. I mean, his life was basically the twentieth century. You know, he was born in eighteen ninety five. He died in nineteen ninety. Um, he lived through you know huge change. And of course, you know the world changes and people change. You know, the man you are at twenty one is certainly not the man you are at you know eighty. Um, and I think over the years it took to write, you know, I got bored of my laptop, I got bored of the sound of my own writing voice. My goodness, I got bored of footnotes, but I never ever got bored of Jim's company. And even when I'd sort of sent in the manuscript and I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty much done and dusted, you know, people were still sending me letters and, and I sort of feel, oh, but I, I, there's no more room for anything. And you'd read a letter and there'd just be a wonderful, funny, kind of odd, anarchic gym line. You think, oh, I've got to squeeze it in somewhere. And I've actually sort of almost got a file of, you know, gym anecdotes that, you know, stockpiles, you know, if anyone ever says you can have a whole extra chapter um, because he was just, you know, an amazing character. Um the anecdotes are such a strength of the book um we all have our favorites mine is um him getting a telling off from brancusi for dropping the fish on the nose and and just taking it in his stride and yeah. thinking oh yes you must fix my sculpture well no but it's one of the things i really like about him because you know we Kettle's Yard, I mean, it, it's a very particular vision, and Jim was very clear when he left it to university how he wanted his vision to be maintained. Um, and I think he made the life of subsequent curators you know, very difficult by sending these endless letters from Edinburgh where he'd retired, saying, you may not do it like this, you must do it like that, don't move a pedal, don't do this. <laughs> um, but when it came to his own collection, he was kind of quite cavalier and kind of rough with things. I mean, I love the story. He had a, a, a William Condon, um, which is very richly impastoed, so I mean, a very thick paint, and it used to collect the dust. And Jim would put it in the bath and sort of get the shower head and give a good rinse. And, and you know, I don't think that's, you know, really appropriate curatorial tactic. And certainly curators don't do that sort of thing at the Tate. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it was his stuff, you know. And, you know, he used to cycle around London with Ben Nicholson's under his arm. Um, but I, I think it's quite a nice example of... I think 
you should live with your art that that is his mantra and it's not much good you know buying something and putting it in a storage deposit you know in Singapore because it's a tax haven or whatever it yeah. is that you know people do and you're gonna have art have it on the wall live with it look at it and okay if it gets bleached by the sun so be it and that is really essentially what Kettle's Yard is all about something I loved about your book loved was how you based each chapter around a specific object it was a really gorgeous structure and the book already it's a cradle to grave biography like you were describing he lived with the 20th century but the way you picked out these individual beautiful pieces and used them as a focal point for different points in his life works so well um and speaks to how important it is how beautiful that relationship of living with your art can be and so i wondered did you have a favorite Oh, well, it's so funny. I was asked this by someone, you know, did you have a favourite artist? Oh, no, you probably can't choose. It'd be like choosing between your children. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I very much got a favourite. Okay, yeah, great, totally, great, totally. Great. I mean, I'm a complete sucker for David Jones, and it probably comes across. Um, because, you know, he's so lovely, and he's so gentle and charming, but also has such a strange imagination. I mean, his letters are irresistible. And, and, and if you go to the Kettle's Yard archive, I mean, David Jones's letters, you know, there'll be kind of drawing of a sword up the edge of the side, or kind of, you know, a tiny little, you know, flower in the corner you know they're like illuminated manuscripts they're so gorgeous in their own right and um I, I, i'm going to flog a different book um which is not what i come here to do but thomas dilworth's biography of david jones is so brilliant um and dilworth actually had interviewed jimmy when he was still alive about his relationship with david jones um and and i i, I love the friendship between jim and david and they were quite different in some ways they were both people who identified strongly as welshmen despite david having been born in southeast london but i think they loved all the kind of you know welsh history and the idea of the roman occupation of wales and they both had this ability i think to kind of move between past and present so for david it was almost like the arthurian legends were happening now and for jim he once described being in st james's park and seeing a pair of birds and saying it was like they'd flown straight out of a mantegna painting it's just this idea of, of history art literature the everyday just kind of all rolled into one um, and, and as for an object, I, I, I love that painting, Flora, in Calix Light at Kettle's Yard. You write about it beautifully. Oh, what did just... Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> That's the one that he very cleverly got his mother to buy. No, so... No, okay, <laughs> so okay. Like, so just... so oh, sorry, sorry. Jim was so naughty. I mean, I think when he was short of cash, um, he, he, he saw this, this drawing by David Jones called Bixilla Regis, which is these beautiful trees in a forest. Yes. Couldn't afford it. Kind of talked his mum up to buying it, knowing his mother was not, you know, a spring chicken and might not be around for that much longer and when the time came he would inherit it which indeed he did <laughs> um but yes granny ede bought it and, and there's just lovely and she, loved it. she loved it she loved it and, and he says you know she kind of rose to it he said you know this is a woman who never really had you know had taken any interest in art at all certainly not you know contemporary art and yet she took it totally seriously and when it came into her life you know she was quite elderly she was not that mobile she spent a lot of time sitting in her chair you know just looking at this extraordinary painting that's so full of detail and i you know i've been and i've looked at it many times and you know each time you go oh i spot i, I didn't see that bird in the tree the last time I mean, i'd seen the you know the, the doves in the sky and it's just one of those works that repays interest and it hangs in Jim's bedroom. And I sort of love the idea that, you know, he just sort of could just lie there looking at the view and, mm. and taking in more and more details. Um, the book is peppered with women like his mother who became collectors of art kind of later in life. Mm. Um, he had very clever relationships with those wealthier than him. Mm. 
how did you negotiate the ethics of some of the situations he came into? So I, I think th th there's one strand I suppose I should talk about first, which is he did have close friendships with people who had more money than him mm. and who were able to buy almost anything they wanted yeah. um, and live in beautiful, spacious houses mm. and commission architects to design them, you know, lovely music rooms and extensions. Mm. Um, he never had squillions to spend. Yeah. I think he is occasionally a bit disingenuous in his writing about sort of how canny he was. You know, occasionally I got this for a song and that for a dime. And sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. He was a bit of a wheeler dealer. He could be a bit of a scrounger. He could certainly be a bit of a sponger when it came to staying in nice houses for the weekend with people who had more money than him. Um, I think like many spongers, I mean, I think of someone like Paddy Lee Fermor, mm -hmm. I think Jim absolutely sung for his supper. I think he was mm -hmm. charming company and very entertaining. Um, but he certainly liked to, to live in a higher style than he might have been able to afford to, particularly as a young man. When it comes to accumulating his collection, there, there, there is some dodgy dealing along the way. I mean, I think particularly, you know, the Godier estate, um, which arrives at the Tate and is dumped in the boardroom, which mm -hmm. is temporarily Jim's office. Um, Godier had died in the First World War without a will, so his worldly effects had passed to his partner, companion, um, Sophie Brzeszka. Um, she then died in Tested, and so all of this um, incredible art and, you know, these drawings, these plaster sculptures, these brasses, these letters, these diaries, they all end up at the Treasury and then at the Tate. The Tate weren't interested, um, and Jim, meanwhile, has been unpacking these boxes, looking at all of this stuff and thinking, there's something here, this is, this is amazing. And Godier was, you know, known a little bit, you know, the Vorticists had discovered him, Ezra Pound had championed him. But, you know, no one was taking his work seriously. Um, and he was so young. And he was so young when he died. I think it's one of the kind of great, you know, irresistible questions. You know, I think he could have, you know, he should, he would have been the greatest sculptor of the 20th yes. century. Yes. Um, and he never had the chance. Um, and Jim set out to promote um, Godier to place his works in collections but the way he acquired the estate was a bit underhand. You write this very well. Oh and I, and I, I did wrestle with it because you know he, he, he wasn't um, he wasn't transparent in his dealings and um, I also didn't want to bore the reader with kind of endless you know letters back and forth. Um, there's, you have to boil things down a bit. Ultimately you present it as a question of he had to tell some lies. Yeah. He had to, but if he hadn't, yeah. what would have happened to this extraordinary archive? Yeah. Would we have? I think a lot of would it would have been had lost. These objects, Certainly have... broken up. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think today we'd call it insider dealing. I think if some curator oh, of the tape starts acquiring um, yes. works of art, and, and you, Jim used a front man. He used um, an artist called Edward McKnight Calfer, who I think thought he was doing this you know, privately. And then Jim puts McKnight's Calfer's <laughs> name in his book. Um, you know, and, and McKnight Calfer is understandably annoyed about this. Mm. Um, and, and I think the other question that sometimes comes up around the Godier estate is Jim subsequently had um, bronzes made of yes. a lot of Godier's work, which, which some people would say, well, you know, unless an artist has expressly given permission, um, you shouldn't really do that. But he kept them, didn't he? He kept them in a drawer for when he really needed to play yeah, a card absolutely and, 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 and he sold them and um 
but Jim's argument would be that, um, you know, Godier had been so, so impoverished in his lifetime, um, but he'd never been able to afford to have his plaster cast turned into bronzes. Mm -hmm. And Godier, in one of his letters, describes his vision of having a gallery space somewhere with his name in gold letters above the door. Um, that's what Jim wanted to do. Um, so I think, you know, as with all things in, in, in life, you know, that there isn't black and white, there isn't quite mm. right and wrong. I think wrong was done, but I think the intentions were right. Mm. Um, so that is a that's a really really well written nuanced bit in the book that I found fascinating. But there's another bit I had a question on. Go on. And that is, so I love Alfred Wallace, one of my top ever favorite artists. And I don't know if you had an answer for my question, which is, why did he never go to St Ives? Oh no! It's, why did he never visit St Ives? It's really ben Nicholson. No, it's Barbara Hepworth. Yeah. Oh no! It's it's one of the things that I I find really annoying it's one of these you just love to find a letter somewhere explaining yes. why Jim never went and we don't have Jim's letters to Wallace because when Wallace and he, he ended up in, in a workhouse and um, the local authorities I mean pretty much burnt the contents of his cottage because oh. they were sort of covered in fleas I can't which I know so, so, I so there was a huge, huge body of work that was just I... put on a bonfire um, so all of Jim's letters to Wallace are missing um, but we have Wallace's letters to Jim and um, I think you can tell from the letters that Wallace sends to Jim that Jim does ask him you know, sincere and interested and enthusiastic questions about his art, what colours are you using, why do you do things this way? So he takes an interest in, in, in that respect. He buys what he can, keeps what he can, um, sells Wallace's work, promotes him, enthuses about him but he never visits him. And I find it very strange because Jim loved a visit to an artist's studio, you know. Big time. Loved to nose around. He absolutely adored Brancusi's studio in Paris. I think the only way I can look at it is, um, I think sometimes we all have these axes. And um, so at the time that Jim was corresponding with Wallace, he was often drawn to Penarth, which is where his parents lived. His wife's Helen's parents lived in Scotland. They did lots of holidays to Bamburgh Castle, which is where Helen Sutherland had a lease. And I think we've all done this, that you sort of mean to go somewhere. And year after year goes by, and you say, oh, next year we'll go to the Silly Isles, or I've always wanted to go to, you know, Haysborough Beach in Norfolk. And somehow you never quite get there. Mm. I can only think that he never got there and never got there. And then there was the war, and then Wallace died, and then he'd missed his opportunity. Yes. But I find it really, really annoying, because I, I, really, I want Jim to have gone, and I want to know what he made of meeting Wallace. But he didn't, and it's a bummer. I... <laughs> Something I thought about was what beautiful objects they could have hunted for together yeah. if they'd have gone to Cornwall yeah. together. Yeah. It's a it's a sad bit. Um another sort of relationship I wanted to interrogate a little bit is you write Helen extremely well and she's so, so lovable. Their relationship extremely beautiful. But and I was speaking with this at a the the there, there were three different sort of guides in Cutter's Yard and, and the lovely man downstairs um, I was chatting to him and I said I was going to interview her and he was like well ask her about Helen <laughs> Helen's suffering, she suffered <laughs> He's like, she was always making the tea she was always expected to make the tea um, and so tell, tell me more about what this woman had to endure because there was a lot to endure I mean the American lecture circuit in the car oh springs to mind oh hellish yes. um, what was her life like? 
Oh, I, mean, I mean, she had the bigger bedroom. <laughs> she had the marginally bigger bedroom. <laughs> um, I mean, I could find plenty of people who, you know, who had reservations about Jim and the odd bad word to say about Jim. I, I couldn't dig up anyone who had anything bad to say about Helen. So a saint. She, I mean, I think she was, um, I mean, she was a saint, but I think she was also an eye roller. And I think mm. she was a tutter. And um, she used to sort of go, oh, like that. You know, her, her granddaughter said, oh, when Jim was sort of going on about spiritualism and mysticism and right. light and ethereal this and that and the other. <laughs> And, you know, I think Helen was a practical soul. I actually think as an artist, I suspect she had more talent than he did. So they met at the Edinburgh um, College of Art. Um, there are very, very few drawings and bits and bobs that survive from their youth. You know, neither of them became professional painters. Jim realised he wasn't really good enough. Yeah. I think Helen probably had, you know, the more natural draftsman's hand. Right. Draftswoman's hand. Um, her granddaughter said you know my grandfather knew nothing about music all the music side was Helen so I think Jim had the eye Helen had the ear um she must have been long-suffering I think he must have been a complete pain to live with um you know she wasn't allowed to put her knitting down anywhere you know when they had young daughters Jim would build these extraordinary sort of play pens and everything cages cages <laughs> everything had to live in the cage including the I children I found that so funny <laughs> But then I sometimes think, you know, when you, when you, talk, so Jim's younger daughter Mary is still alive. She's about to turn 96. And when I interviewed her, she certainly had, you know, you know a bit of sounding off to do about her dad. Mm. But, you know, the way she describes, you know, sitting on the bottom step of their house in Hampstead, sitting on her mother's lap, you know, whisking mayonnaise, or sitting underneath the piano while her mother played. I think it was a very happy childhood. Um, she described, um, Mary described her, her father Jim as very courtly. So often they would walk him to the tube station before work and he would sort of bow to them and take off his hat before he said goodbye. I think he was the most wonderful company uh, when he was on form, but he must have been, you know, very difficult in some ways. It, it, it struck me when um, I'd finished the manuscript before this happened, but when mm. Prince Philip and, and then the Queen died, do you remember all the broadcasts? They, they kept playing that line of the Queen's, you know, who was my strength and my stay. Yes. And I think for Jim, Helen was his strength and his stay. Well, the, the wedding ring. Oh. I know. Well, it's, it's a couple of people. I know, actually. Yeah. For context, <laughs> Laura and I have both tearing up a little bit right now. But people have said to me, said, oh, you know, I got to the death of Helen, I cried, and then Jim died, and I cried again. They said, well, I cried writing those bits, I think particularly the death of Helen. And yes. there's a letter that um, Helen started writing to Mary the night that she died, and mm. she didn't finish it. I think she planned to finish it in the morning. Mm. Um, she had a... A heart attack you know and actually you know she went quite gently and not yeah. in a lot of pain Jim was with her holding her hand but Jim was able to finish this letter on, on you know on the other side of the sheet explaining to their daughter Mary you know exactly what had happened that night and you you, you cannot read it without just sort of you know just want you know you know you just want to die with them it's sort of so sad <laughs> but it's sort of also lovely you know they sit there and they've been reading Lear to each other Helen was a great Shakespearean could quote reams and reams and reams of it um, they always listen to music together in the evenings. Um, 
if you think about the sort of geography of Kettle's Yard, so there's this teeny tiny little kitchen which isn't even open to the public, um, but Helen would cook, you know, one of her macaroni and cheeses and stewed fruits. They were quite frugal eaters. Um, but then Jim would get out two beautiful, you know, 18th century glass goblets and they fill it with sort of, you know, very modest amount of very good wine. Um, and they each have a one single square of the darkest dark chocolate. And they would go up the spiral staircase and into that room with the Godier dancer um, because that room gets the light and the, you know, late afternoon early evening and they would sit there and Helen would choose a record and they put it on the gramophone and they would sit there and Jim might read and Helen might knit it was a very companionable marriage um but I think he must have driven her up the wall I mean she used to call him OB which was old bones or old bugger when she was really annoyed <laughs> with him incredible um you've briefly you mentioned and please repeat the name the wonderful biography you recommend of David Jones Thomas Dilworth okay Thank you. Because for me, when I was reading this book, it immediately gets into not only sort of the upper echelons of the genre of art biography, um, biographies of artists, autobiographies by artists, but biography in general. So like Claire Tomlin, Hermione Lee, Super Joe. And I wondered, you're such a wonderful biographer. Do you have any other biographers you love? Apart from that, or do you, or indeed, do you want to try another subject? Would you be able to try? Do you have another subject in you, or was this such an intense cradle to grave experience that you can never imagine doing it again? So I, I love biography. Um, I I do a lot of book reviews for the Times, and I tend to do biographies for them. Um, I'm I I love Hermione Lee. Mm. Um, I think you think about something like her Virginia Woolf, which is about 800 pages and about the only entry book I've ever read where I think, don't end, keep oh, going, no, don't on end. and on and on. Best thing ever, yes. <laughs> um, and I think the thing I like about biography, I, 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 I'm in awe of novelists because I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could just invent something out of nowhere. Mm. And the lovely thing about the biography is actually the story is already written for you. You have your hero or, you or your heroine, they're going to die, they're going to get married possibly, you know, so they're going to be born, they're going to get married, they're going to die. The, the, the story is there. Um, there's going to be some adventures along the way. You don't have to invent it, you just have to discover it and you have to sort of fill in the gaps and work out how you tell it. Um, a huge part of that is not only working out what should go in but what you leave out <laughs> which must be heartbreaking <laughs> and, and, and you know and I, I i know my book is probably too long because i don't think i've ever really reviewed a book where i've not gone oh it's sort of dragged a bit in the last 30 pages <laughs> you know it could have been cut but the trouble is this biography you obviously get so into it and yes. you think it's the most fascinating thing in the world whether yes. anybody else agrees with you or you're not, lucky in that it, it is very fascinating <laughs> but um I, I i i like i like life stories i think it's really interesting and i think um without sort of getting too sort of philosophical about it it, it does make you think about what you want from your own life and what matters and what counts and what Absolutely. you might be remembered for um and i think you know jim is really interesting because um it, his granddaughter says you know my jim had a passion for posterity and you know he left his house exactly as it was he wanted to be remembered he had had several goes at writing a memoir there's an unpublished manuscript called between two memories which has some lovely turns of phrase in it. it is utterly maddening because jim who could be quite a name dropper in letters suddenly comes over really coy so he'll tell you this fantastic story about sort of being out on the town with someone in the 20s in london but doesn't tell you who it is and why would you why it's just so just maddening um and and it sort of jumps back and forth in time there are no dates um it, it is 
it is unpublishable as it is. Um, <laughs> he did write a book called A Way of Life, which is um, this incredible collage and scrapbook about Kettlesell, which I think is a truly wonderful book. It's not quite a biography because it's only you know, impressions and snapshots and, and snippets and tidbits. Um, but as a, as a book about Kettle's Yard, it's very, very beautiful and unusual. Um, so I think my job in a way I felt was to kind of give Jim the biography he didn't have a chance to write for himself. Yeah. Um, but I suppose um, also to perhaps interrogate and challenge him yes. because, you know, he didn't always put in writing the things he did that, you know, were, were not entirely, you know, above, above board. Mm. I just wanted you, I just wanted to ask, you know, as we're getting to the end, we've obviously spoken about David Jones. Mm. He is such a joy to discover in this book, you know, not only his relationships with, his relationship with Jim, but his relationship with Helen. Mm. The way you wrote him, absolutely beautiful. We all grew so fond of him. But... Talk to me about some of those other characters who really who really infuse the book, you know, Kit Wood, Helen Sutherland, mm. um, even people who make cameos. Who were your other sort of favourites? Because that's a real joy of this book. It it makes it actually a very this book I didn't find I didn't find it at I found it almost novelly to read. Aww. Um so more, more of your favourite characters. Um, oh, so you have to sort of rein, your, rein yourself in sometimes. So <laughs> you probably tell. I sort of love. I mean, I loved Eddie Marsh, for example, who was um, a a senior civil servant. Um, he was Winston Churchill's private secretary whenever Churchill was in office. He was also a great art collector and and a fantastic patron to young artists um, and poets. You know, um, Marsh was a brilliant manuscript reader, and you know, he would kind of go back and say, "This comma, shall we discuss this comma? Does it need?" to be there could it be better you know incredibly diligent um and marsh had a set of rooms in lincoln's inn fields you know the sort of inns of court um and they were hung you know kind of from skirting board to, to ceiling with pictures and on the backs of doors um and, and i quite like this because um in, in my flat i have totally run out of wall space and we're now doing backs of doors and above doors and in the bathroom and, and everything just spills out uh, and, and Marsh said, you know, why wouldn't you have wonderful paintings in the bathroom? You know, you're going to be in there. You've got to have something to look at. Um, and so long as you can, you know, deal with your damp, damp that's fine. Um, um, so I love Marsh. And he's a very striking man. He wore a monocle. And he had these incredibly sloping, you know, elaborate eyebrows. Um, and, and so Jim knew him in his youth. Um, who else? Helen Sutherland was irresistible. She used to get suits made at Dior. She had size three feet, always immaculate, had beautiful, um, you know, dove grey silk blouses. I interviewed um, the daughter of Nicolette Grey, who was an art historian, and, and um, her, her daughter Sophie used to go and stay with Helen Sutherland at her fabulous houses. And she and David Jones once got caught um, eating black currants in their respective bedrooms and getting black currant stains on the sheets. And so it'd be absolutely like mortified. And how were they going to tell Helen Sutherland, who was so pristine and so fastidious? Um, but oh, I would have liked to have been a house guest at a Helen Sutherland weekend. Yes. I think it would have been very civilised. There are two more bits I just briefly want to discuss. One is, I can't believe we haven't discussed it yet because it is, it's a, it's a real joint of your book, and that is the Tate flood. Oh yes, yeah. I actually didn't know it had happened. Um, so dramatic, mm. so traumatic, mm. so shocking. Mm. Um, I've obviously read it, but please, please tell, mm. please tell us about. 
the flood. So, so really weirdly, it's the first it's a bit of the bonkers story. It, it's, 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 it's mad. Because actually, so when, when, when the first lockdown happened, in that spring lockdown, and I got, oh bugger, yeah, I'm not going to America, I can't get to any archives, I can't do the research I need to do to sort of be able to start at the beginning and write all the way through. So I thought, I've got to start somehow and somewhere. And I thought, why don't I write something that is quite a distinct episode? And I thought, okay, let, let's try the Tate Flood. And I got up all the news, because all the newspaper archives are online. So I read all the reports from the time. Um, on the Tate website, they've got a kind of dossier of, you know, what was lost. Anyway, so I started writing this, and, and it is remarkable. So in January of 1928, there had been heavy snow that melted very fast. Um, it caused a lot of flood water to come into the Thames and the Thames burst its banks at Millbank. And um, it flooded into the Tate basement. The newspaper reports can't quite agree. Um, it, you know, the, the reports say, it was five foot deep, it was six foot deep, it was 10 foot deep. Either way, it, it was There deep. was a lot of water was a, in an art gallery. A lot of water in Panic. an art gallery. Panic. Um, and it obviously happened in the dead of night. Anyway, an SOS goes out. I think a call was made to Charles Aitken, who lived just around the corner from Jim in Hampstead. Jim didn't have a telephone, so someone must have gone round and woken him up. He gets the tube as far as he can get the tube, tries to get on a bus. There are no buses because it's flooded. So he wades the last however far to get there. Um, he then spends two nights up to his waist or higher in the tape basement trying to save what can be saved. You know, not just him, you know, wardens and other curators. It's January, it's bloody cold, it's dark. You, know, you think how short those days in January are. Um, Jim describes how some of the Tate um, cleaning ladies, you know, get these ton of watercolour drawings, start, start wringing them out like sponges, and Jim is like, don't do that. Um, you know, a lot is saved. Um, but Because of Jim. Well, because of Jim and, 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 and others. But, you know, I think, you know, night after night after yes. night, and, you know, the pumps are going, and the fire brigade is trying to pump all the water out. But... Um, Clearly, it had a profound psychological effect on Jim, and you know he writes to Ben Nicholson that you know having managed to subdue for ten, twelve years what had happened to him in France oh. in the First World War, it all comes quite literally flooding back. Mm. And I, I do think it's interesting. There is an extraordinary passage in David Jones's um, long prose poem in parenthesis where Jones sort of describes the amphibious subaquatic world of the trenches and, and and one of the things that that i would hypothesize is okay of course the violence gets you of course in your men at arms uh, men in you know comrades at arms kills gets to you i suspect for many people the endless cold and the damp and the trench foot and, and just never being dry that that must you know have an incredible effect um, and for Jim, it just brought everything back. He, at the time, was working on the Godier letters, you know, reading Godier's very last letters from the front, written in the days before he died. I think all of this stuff kind of got muddled up together in his mind, and he had a complete breakdown. Yeah, which we've only gotten to after <laughs> talking about um, little little um, plug holes. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the You'll happy, have to read the book. It's the happy bits. Yes. The happy bits. It's it's an extraordinary book, and um, and I'm so so glad I could speak to you and ask you all these questions. Um, and our lovely customers have really have really been enjoying this. Goodbye. Hope they will all go to Kettle's Yard. Oh, fans, <laughs> fans. They they already they already love it. Um, so having asked you everything, I wanted to. Leave it there. Thank you so much. My pleasure.